Good morning, good morning, good morning. I hate to break up good Christian fellowship. I'm so good at doing it. Uh, but here we are once more, breaking up good Christian fellowship to begin. Um, let's start with a word of prayer and uh, tell you kind of the direction we're going to head, and we will go ahead and get to it. God, we are thankful for your grace and mercy um, toward our church. We are thankful that you have committed to always be with us to the end of the age. We're thankful for the opportunity to, by your power, wield the keys of the kingdom. We're thankful um, for one another and the family of God that you have joined together in this local body. And Lord, um, we are hopeful. Uh, we are hopeful for how you will continue to work and make your name great through our church in the greater Nashville area and even to the nations. And so uh, as we talk about these things today that can seem like such a uh, a little blip in the larger theological sea or social sea, we pray that um, um, this would not be just an intellectual exercise, but this would be meaningful, that this could shape our thought and therefore shape our lives. And so we pray toward that end in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so if you have not been in a Sunday school in a while, like Laura Jane just said, we... Um, have been going through, we're in a larger series on ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church, and we started with elders, then we moved toward congregationalism, and I sought to, over the course of four um, classes, uh, some, whatever, lectures, classes, Sunday school sessions, to make a case for uh, elder-led congregationalism. I don't have time to rehearse that right now. The only thing I didn't get to is one last objection to congregationalism that I'm going to go over. And then we are going to, uh, I'm going to sum up the discussion here and then uh, give answers to a couple of questions that people might throw out. When do our Bibles and when do Bible studies in small groups turn into churches? Um, what's the difference between a, a, a non-member who seems committed and is here long term and a member. What, what, what's the difference? I mean, practically, functionally, what's the difference? I want to answer that question. And then I want to try to move into making a biblical case. I'm going to argue for a minimalist model of um, church membership. Not Minimalist, not meaning lack of importance, but lack of formality and structure that I think you can clearly get from the pages of the New Testament. Um, and so that's the kind of church membership that I would say is certainly biblical. So that's kind of the that's kind of the path forward. Any questions before we dive into that? Okay, well, um, the final misconception or objection to congregationalism that I want to discuss is this one right here. In congregationalism, the authority and responsibility for protecting the bride of Christ and carrying out the mission of the church is largely placed in the hands of new believers, weak believers, immature believers, and untrained believers. Now, this is an objection that um, is not even unique to just congregational rule. It, it, is, it is an objection in principle to anything where there is a majority wielding influence or there's group decision-making. For example, Plato, the philosopher, Plato was no fan of democracy. And frankly, it's probably not surprising in 399 that Athenian democracy executed his teacher 
Socrates, so he probably had a bad taste in his mouth over that. But he wrote against democracy, and one of the reasons uh, is because he thought, what do you have? You have people who don't know what they're talking about in charge. And, and, and we talk about this uh, uh, all the time when we see people who believe very strange things or do st very strange things or some of these videos going around that I've seen where, where you're asking people, hey, who was involved in the Mexican-American War? And they're like, oh, I have no idea. It's like, you know, what century was and, – and it's just this gross level of ignorance. And like the tagline is always like, these people cast meaningful votes in elections. It's like – uh, you know, so, so so one of the challenges at congregational is a theological version of the same thing. They're saying, "Listen, in con and this is this was the objection of the Catholic Church. This is why the scriptures were not translated into uh, vernacular, the, the language of the people." They said, "Listen, this is the oracles of God here. Well, well, you can't give this to people who can barely read, who don't have any theological education. They'll ruin it. They'll ruin the faith." What, what you got to do is you got to be trained. You got to be, you know, a, a professional. You got to be a priest or clergy or theologian or something. You can't have common folks reading for the Bible for themselves and believing all sorts of heresy. They've never taken a hermeneutics class. They, okay, on and on and on. And so, um, and, and so that, that, that's basically the objection. Okay. So here's what I want to say. Uh, to and here's why I do think it is a, a bit of a misconception. Um, a misconception slash. Let me give pushback to the objection. First, this is where the reality in the new covenant uh, of the new covenant and the priesthood of all believers comes into play. And so we do believe on the basis of scripture that we are a kingdom priest, that we're united to Christ, and that in the new covenant, particularly as a Baptist church, we believe the church is a pure. Uh, body, a pure institution, unlike our Presbyterian friends who believe that the new covenant is a mixed covenant of believers and unbelievers. Now, if you have a mixture of believers and unbelievers, uh, then certainly the problems, it would seem, get greater, at least as far as I could tell, in terms of being tied to the text and being really trying to be faithful to it. But certainly, uh, the first step is to say, listen, we need to establish that we're talking about a covenant in which a covenant in which it says people will no longer have to teach one another saying no God because they will know God. They will know God. You won't have to go to special access to get knowledge of God. Second of all, the person who says this, what do you think they would say to the Galatian church? Remember Paul goes in, in Galatians chapter 1, holds the church accountable for detecting a false gospel, doesn't he? Remember? It's one of the most astonishing examples in the New Testament. He doesn't point out the elders. He says, even if I show up, or even if an angel from heaven shows up to you and says something different than what I said, you should rebuke them. That person should be accursed. I mean, he gives them the responsibility of saying, this is how sure I am that you understand the gospel. That if I show up and say, oh, what I really meant was, or if someone showed, I am the angel of the Lord, and thus says the Lord this, this, and this, you need to say, oh, actually, you're not the angel of the Lord because that part was wrong. That's what Paul says. So Paul says, apparently, he believes that uh, the body of Christ, ag the aggregate, to be clear, the aggregate body of Christ has the ability to do that. Um, third, because of the clarity of Scripture, 
identifying the what and the who of the gospel, that is, proper confessors and proper confessions, uh, do not require someone to be theologically trained in any formal sense, okay? Exercising the keys does not require a seminary degree. Understanding what the gospel is, just like those congregants in the Galatian churches that doesn't understand, uh, doesn't require having a degree uh, from a seminary or, or being a, a bookworm or anything like that, okay? Or anything like that. And that comes specifically out of the clarity of Scripture that anyone who has facility in just understanding language in general can sit down and the primary central message of the gospel is clear. And so, when, uh, and then finally, let me say, let me make one final point from uh, the end of Romans and then tease it out. Paul tells the church at Rome, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Apparently, Paul does not have nearly as low a view as the common objection goes to congregationalism. So what are we to make of this? Uh, let me just say, I think that when someone says, well, you're letting people who don't know what they're talking about or ignorant run the church, um, first of all, it's a very low view of the way the shepherds and pastors have taught the people in the church, number one. Number two, I think it's insulting um, to you all, to us, that someone would say, oh my goodness, why would we let, and then we can fill any of your names in, have a say, you know, they're, they're, they're not legit, okay? It's insulting because it downplays the realities of the new covenant that were not there in the old covenant. And finally, it misunderstands congregationalism as just pure democratic rule, and that's just not the case. That is not the case. Remember, elders have a different kind of authority and a different kind of responsibility to shepherd the flock of God, excuse me, and the prerogative, the authority to, to bind consciences according to the word of God. And so it is not simply uh, everyone raise their hand and we're just going to do majority rule on everything and then just hope the majority actually knows what they're talking about. This, that, that, that's what Plato was worried about. You've heard the phrase, the tyranny of the majority, Okay, that is the one weakness in um, in democracy. Okay, you get a majority that they all agree on all the same things. Okay, um, and, and and it just basically stays there, and the minority always gets oppressed. You can go look at the history of ideas. It's one of the weaknesses of democracy: the, the risk of the tyranny of majority. That is simply not the case in a congregationalist church structure where it's, that is elder led. Okay. It simply is not the case. So for a variety of reasons, I think this falls flat. I think it's insulting to people. I think it's a caricature of the actual view. I don't think it's takes seriously the way the Apostle Paul actually engages with churches. And for their, that reason, I'm not, this, this does not bother me. Okay, it seems like a, it's a, it seems like it has a lot of rhetorical bite and might have more legitimate, might cause me more legitimate concern in an area um, like uh, pol political philosophy, but when it comes to the church, it seems to, to to miss the mark. Okay, any questions? Does that make sense? Is there any questions about that? Any questions about that? And notice that the, the things that the congregation is making decisions on isn't like, all right, raise their hand. Who thinks the spirits in prison in First Peter three is Noah preaching before the flood, or is this the Christus Victor model of Christ proclaiming the gospel? It's like. That's not that's not what we have in mind here. It's like, all right, who thinks that uh, this is a th this is a possessive genitive or is this a whatever? Right, everyone raise their hand. How should we interpret this passage? Who thinks this is a is this an objective or subjective genitive? The righteousness of God is it? For, 
That's not, the, that's not the kind of stuff imagined in congregationalism is what the congregation is coming together to make decisions on, but primarily it's coming together to make decisions that involve wielding the keys, declaring a what and a who. And you don't have to have a theological education or be particularly smart or well-educated or anything like that to be able to do that just fine. That's the point, okay? If we were saying, all right, we're going to tease out from the Greek uh, um, the uh, Granville Sharp constructions in Titus 1 and um, what is it, 2 Timothy, whatever, where's the other Granville Sharp construction? Titus 1, 1 and whatever the other one is that the King James Version mistranslates, then, then it would be a problem because most people don't even know what a Granville Sharp construction is and there's no reason anyone should. There's no reason anyone should. You would lose, you, most of you would just lose like a critical one minute of your life, if I even explained what that was, okay? So because we're not making judgments together on things like that, but judgments together wielding the keys, this objection misses the mark. Okay, I know it's a bad PowerPoint best practice. I get it, Just, but I want you to be able to read it with me, okay? In summary, the New Testament seems to suggest that the whole church is given the keys to the kingdom, that elders have an additional kind of authority within the local church to administer the household of God and bind consciences according to the word of God, and three, that gathered churches, members, and elders have the ability and responsibility to authoritatively exercise the keys by publicly declaring on behalf of heaven biblical confessions, what, and biblical confessors, who, declarations that will align with the final judgment in the absence of repentance and or apostasy. Okay, I'm not going to read it again, but that's a great summary of the congregationalist position and implication. Okay, and do I have this on here? Therefore, here, read this next one with me. I promise I don't have another paragraph, but again, this is important. Therefore, we should shy away from church polities that tend to functionally take the exercise of the keys out of the hands of the congregation and place them into the hands of the professionals within it which would be either elder rule or the orthodox apostolic succession that we talk about from the orthodox churches, or into the hands of those outside of the congregation altogether, Presbyterianism, Anglicanism, the Catholic Church. All such polities seem to functionally fire local church, local congregations from their God-given responsibility to exercise the keys. Okay? That's the idea. That if congregations in the church are given, the local church, the gathered body, are given the keys of the kingdom to authoritatively declare what's and who's, then polities that take those decisions out and kicks them up to the professionals, um, it's, it, it functionally fires them from their God-given responsibility to do that. That's what I'm suggesting. That's what I'm suggesting, okay? Any questions about how I just phrased that? Does that make sense? Is that persuasive? Who says that's not persuasive, Tyler? Who says no? You've gone too far. All right, you can come tell me later. Okay? You can come tell me later. But that is the idea. That's the idea. Okay, so now some ancillary questions that might flow out of this discussion. Okay? When do our Bible studies and small groups become churches? Many people have heard about the church that started from a small group, started from a Bible study. Of course, it happens all the time on the missionary frontier 
all the rest. And so in light of what we've said about congregationalism and authority and wielding the keys, it's a good question to ask, when does something like that move from this thing over here and then become this thing, a church over here? Right? How do you know like what, what has to happen to get from A to B? And so let me sketch out based on what we have already gone through, and I can't go back and you know, we can't go back and turn to every single point that I've gone through over four weeks of this. But let me sketch out uh, four points, and the last one has some subpoints. Okay, when, in light of what we've studied, do Bible studies becomes churches? Number one, we have two minimum or three people, much better. Okay, significantly better. Three is significantly better because then you can have a two against one. But you at least have to have two people minimum. And we get that from Matthew 18. And the three is uh, far is significantly categorically better because of how it works. But you could potentially have two. Second, we all identify with Christ, the who, and we articulate our confession. What? So I'm saying, hey, I'm a Christian. And then Glenn says, I'm a Christian. And I say, great. Now, what do you what does that mean? And then I articulate my confession of faith. Then he articulates his confession of faith. So we both identify with Christ, then we explain what that means. He's identifying as a who, as a who of Christ. So am I. He's articulating a what that is Christ in the gospel. So am I. And then we evaluate and affirm each other's profession of faith in life. So we couldn't get the church off the ground. And I was like, uh, actually, you're not a Christian. Like what you just said is total heresy. You have to, you would have to, with the two or three people gathered together, there is a unity in identifying um, uh, uh, with one another such that, okay, what you just said is the, is the faith that Paul said. If someone else, you know, comes and says something different, let him be a curse. You have articulated that correctly. It seems to me that you are a person who is stepping into that and owning that personally. And then four, we commit to and share a mutual understanding that we, and then I'm going to have a couple subpoints here, three, just three subpoints, three subpoints. First, we will meet together regularly in the name of Christ for gospel exhortation and encouragement. This is coming out of that Hebrews 10, 25, as a bona fide outpost of the kingdom of God on earth. So let me just pause and say, this is the language that I'm going to use in the next section when we talk about church discipline, but this is the embassy model of church membership and what a local church is. So imagine, well, you know, everyone knows what an embassy is, right? It's like a little, little piece of home, but not where you live, right? So you have something that is owned by that government in one sense of the word, but is, you know, that you have an American embassy in wherever uh, some other country and um, I want to suggest that the church, local churches especially, are like little embassies of a far country. Embassies of a far country. It's where it's the physical representations of the global body of Christ that is walking around all the time and is just anyone who is a Christian counts as the church in this large global lowercase c Catholic sense. But then the gathered churches is the visible, concrete, tangible expression of that, and church membership, I'm going to argue, is your passport, and I'm going to talk about why. That is, when we get there, your passport in church discipline is going to be getting your passport revoked. Just hold that thought in your head. I'll get there. It's a very helpful and I think it's a very biblical way to think about it and to help you remember, um, but the idea here is that we are, um, we are meeting together regularly 
in the name of Christ. And people say, well, you don't have to meet to be a church. But as Jonathan Lehman points out, he's like, yeah, you know what? When the team leaves practice, they're still a team. But what happens if they never come together? He's like, you don't really have a team. You have people saying they're on a team, right? I play baseball. What team? This team. How often do y'all play? Never. How often do y'all practice? Never. Then what do you mean you're on a team? Okay. Regularly gathering together as a bona fide outpost of the kingdom of God on earth. We understand that is what we self-identify as that. We understand this is what we are doing. We are becoming a church. We have a responsibility. We agree, share a mutual understanding. We have a responsibility to maintain personal holiness and orthodoxy. So that's right practice and right belief and ensure others do the same in order to continue as a part of the outpost. Meaning, if you decide to not walk in holiness, if you decide to live in unrepentance, if you decide to reject, for example, Christ as Lord, you cannot continue as a part of the outpost, this embassy. Okay? And then finally, as elements and context permit, very key, we will observe the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, both in obedience to Christ, but also as visible, key-wielding expressions of the church. Baptism binding one to the many, and the Lord's Supper binding the many to one. When we go through baptism and the Lord's Supper, I'll tease that out a little bit more, but certainly the ordinance of the church have a very specific role in being visible demonstrations and initiating oath signs, is what I would suggest to you, okay? The baptism being the initiating oath sign, and then the Lord's Supper being the covenant confirming oath sign. Okay, and that both both in one in both cases we are declaring a what and a who. All right, so these are the things I think that we've got two or three folks, and we go through all these steps. Okay, then we have a then function then we have a church. That's what I'm suggesting. Okay, if, if we can if we can we can say all these things are true about us um, in a way, and this is the bare minimum, right? You're like, well, where's the line about having a pastor? It's like, remember, the churches in Acts fourteen twenty three, in, in Titus or uh, in Titus one five, the churches those churches did not yet have elders, but they were still churches. Paul appointed churches, told Titus to appoint elders in those churches. So you, this is the minimalist church. I think functionally, if we came together and said, yes, this is a Bible study. We're going to understand these things. We're going to mutually affirm these things. We are going to identify as being this thing for these reasons with this framework. We, want, we would probably practically as a next step say, okay, who could potentially, is there anyone among us who could be an, an elder or a shepherd? Or could we find someone to do that? But it would, it would be a mistake to think that, for example, if you're on the missionary frontier and you've got 12 people meeting in a home, but no one is particularly, uh, but no one necessarily feels called to be an elder um, in that particular congregation, that you just can't have a church at all. You can't have a church at all. It's an incomplete, it would be an incomplete church. It's a not fully formed church, not a fully mature church, but... But the, the, the critical insight that I mentioned from Acts 14.23 and Titus 1.5 is that having elders, having an elder is not required to nevertheless be a legitimate church. Otherwise, Paul could not say, I went back to the churches that I had planted and appointed elders. Okay, the churches preceded the elders. Any questions about this? You think I left anything out? Or any of these that... Uh, Seem or maybe seem unnecessary. Maybe it's too much. Yeah. The first one is, um, 
So certainly, yeah, so that's a good point. So let me just rephrase for the for the camera. It's like, could you get two people who didn't know what they were talking about or who had totally messed up perceptions, but they agreed with each other on their messed up perceptions or their messed up desires and their bad theology and call it a church? Um, in a certain sense, yes. So so um, certainly, and I, and I appreciate you making the point, because obviously people who do not agree on, or people who are articulating a false gospel, it doesn't how much, matter how much they agree with one another. If they're they're agreeing on a false gospel, they're not going to be a church. Yeah, exactly. So when I say here that we need to identify with Christ and articulate our confession and then affirm them, I'm saying that we have the ability, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that, it, uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm saying now, it is baked into that, and I appreciate you saying it, that obviously it has to line up for our professions. We can't both be wrong and somehow make a church, right? The, the profession has to be... Um, it has to be a biblical profession. It has to be a, 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 an understanding of the gospel that this person has that I can look at and affirm subjectively. But as it turns out, um, it does certainly have to be objectively true as well. And like you just said, when people get together and subjectively agree, but their theology doesn't map onto reality, you get something like a cult. Yeah, that's true. That is certainly the case. Well, let me push the question. Well, um, so how, well, how would they know? I think they would know this. I think we would charge them to know the same way that we would know by examining the scriptures and by listening to other people. How would they know even if they didn't become a church though? I mean, it's a more general question about how someone who thinks that they're right comes to know something, right? Um, and, and so, yeah, just because, so we might make a distinction between a bunch of people getting together, doing this, um, having, having it all wrong, and calling themselves a church and actually being a church. And the difference is whether you're a church of true confessors with a, a, a true confession. Okay. Does that make sense? I mean, but hypothetically, I'm like, I understand what you're saying. Like hypothetically, certainly it's possible for people to get together, get self-deceived and call themselves a church. I mean, we've seen that many, many, many times. It's, it's not even like a wild thought experiment. I mean, it actually happens. Um, but the point here is, is if it's so maybe the whole thing is conditioned by if these things align with reality, then you go from an objectively Christian Bible study or an objectively accurately Christian small group. So I'm already baking that in. It's a Christian small group, legitimate Christian Bible study. Then you add these elements on top of that and you get a church out of it. Okay. Yeah. Two or three, yeah, that's a great that's a great point, and, and I, I should have uh, yeah when I said I should have said when do our Christian Bible studies and small groups become churches? That's really what. But you're right, that would fix it too. We have two or three Christians, certainly, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a good way to. I was really focusing more on the organizational changes from a Bible study to a small group to a church, and not so much the possibility that the whole thing was had a foundation of sand. But yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. We have two or three, and the reason I said people is because you might identify and then get to step two, and I say, I don't, I don't think you're a Christian. So there was a little bit of process baked into that, but, but certainly.
Really good. Any, anything else there? Yes. 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 Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think, so normally, uh, for a variety of reasons, um, including what, what it communicates and what the ordinances do, uh, what, what, you know, what they do as key-wielding activities, what they represent in a church, that in a fully mature church, um, an elder or someone acting in an elder-esque kind of role um, would administer those things. However, there is no there is no New Testament text that says, and thus... Um, this 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 must be the case. And for an example, a couple of years ago, the article, really good article, was making its rounds about this incredible Christian movement uh, in the Middle East that was primarily women. They were just like, well, well, all the men either want to kill the Christians or don't they don't want to be Christians. And here we are, we're trying to, and they were asking these kind of very questions. It's like, well, how do we stand up a church? We're, we understand that the Bible says this, such and such about. Um, and so some of these questions came to the forefront. Um, and so is it the case that an elder always, no matter what, as a theological, biblical, straight out of the Bible, must do this? You can't get that. You cannot get that from the New Testament. Okay? Um, and certainly where you're going to find that, that these things are done by non-elders, and maybe in some cases if there's literally no one around, maybe women as well in a context uh, I'm in a missionary, I'm in a pioneer missionary context. There's literally no one around. It's a ton, it's a group of women. How long do I remain? And so, yeah, it, 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 so you might say that an incomplete or a broken ankle is still an ankle in some cases. Um, and maybe that's not, a, I don't even think that's a good way to, to use, I, li I really like the broken ankle analogy. I don't even say that sure that's broken. It's just incomplete. It's just a, it's just you're doing the best with what you have there. And the New Testament does not specifically say that this has to happen. This has to happen from an elder. And it doesn't say even specifically that it has to happen uh, from a man. Again, to be clear, I think in a fully formed and mature, either informal situation or a local church, that is who is going to administer those things because of what they generally symbolize and represent. Okay? Really good question. Yeah? Uh, so, so the thing that they do not... So that's that first. Oh, wait, mine are different than yours, aren't they? What does this say? The um, so our small groups do not, as I explained it, uh, identify themselves as the, the outpost of the kingdom of God on earth. Our church, the outpost, something. Well, I wouldn't say out. Yeah, I would say subgroups within the outposts. Yeah, small groups of folks within the local outpost, yeah. So when we have a small group, we're not standing up and declaring the Madison community group does not stand up and declare them to be a legitimate outpost of the church of, of God, organized as such. They are. They understand that they are a part of this outpost, uh, and that's really the fundamental difference. But, but it's, and, and flowing out of that, that's why they would not do things like uh, the ordinances of baptism. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, yeah, great question, great question. Any other questions about this? It's a good thing to think about. Good thing to consider and think through. Okay. Let me make one caveat about the ordinances as well. Um, and we're, I'll come back to this later, but let me just mention it in passing because it was just asked about. Certainly the ordinances are going to normally be done in the gathered assembly. 
I'm suggesting that largely because I believe them to be key wielding activities. So baptism is the initiating sign oath of the kingdom. Here's what it says. It says, because of how you have identified the person getting baptized, we're saying this to this person, because of how you have identified with Christ in belief and fruit in this act, we are ratifying your status as united to Christ and therefore united to us. Okay, That's one to the many. That's what we're looking at in baptism. This person says, here's what I believe. Here's who I am. Here's why I think that I'm a Christian. And we are before them saying, okay, in light of this, we are identifying that you are one of us and this person um, is baptized as a result. The Lord's Supper is the renewing sign oath. It's the confirming oath. So we declare our membership in the new covenant on behalf of the body and blood of Christ. So here's what this one says. It says, in light of what we believe in our lives before God in the new covenant, we identify with Christ and his work once more. Once more. We identify with Christ and his work once more, and God ratifies that identification in the partaking of the elements, which is why it's called, it is the grace. It's a common, it is a grace. It's a means of grace in the Reformed tradition coming out of the Protestant Reformation, that these are means of grace. These are um, places where God ratifies, where the Lord speaks because of the gathered people, but does so in different ways. Um, so in light of that, let me just say this, and I'll get to, if you're like, Tyler, that was confusing. I went over that really fast because we're not into the baptism and Lord's Supper section of this Sunday school series yet. I'll return to that, okay? But in light of what I just said, I'll state my, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan, um, and I don't, I don't, I don't, goodness gracious, please don't anyone get angry if this is you, okay? I'm not a fan of the summer camp baptism, or the randomly baptized in a swimming pool by my friend on Saturday after the football game kind of a thing when I repented and believed the gospel. I'm not a fan of small groups or families um, taking a Lord's Supper by themselves, isolated. Why? Because the gathered body exercises the keys. That's very, very clear, and these are key-wielding activities. That's what, that's what I'm suggesting. Not suggesting that it's sin, not suggesting that, that, that you need to be sad about that. But what I'm suggesting is the idea is that these are key-wielding activities, and it's the gathered body that wields the keys, and therefore that's where they should happen. That's, that's, that's my suggestion to you. Okay? Okay. I hope no one offended. Please, please don't be offended if, if, if you were baptized in the camp uh, lake. Okay? You are... You probably you still are you're good to go probably so just don't worry but I'm just saying ideally uh, ideally uh, uh, if you're a Christian I mean I don't I don't want to give someone a blanket you know but yes most likely but I mean doesn't it make sense though what, doesn't it make sense that you would be baptized into the body who's affirming who's affirming you and saying declaring a who and a what over you it seems to me that just it, it it makes not only does it make sense but it flows from if they if 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 you if I can uh, persuade you of my argument that baptism and the Lord's Supper are key-wielding exercises, we've already seen, seen that the local, con the gathered body wields the keys. And so that's where it needs to happen. That's my argument. Okay? Any questions about that before I move on to the next one, which might even hurt more people's feelings? Yes. Yeah. Right, right, right. So wait, wait. So, 
So you're, I, I was, I just going to go a different way with that. Do what? Say that again. Oh, needing to be an elder. Right, right, right. Yeah, and so, well, some of them, right? So you've got what? Uh, Apollos baptiz- baptizing, right? In, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. And then he goes on to save people he baptized. But there's fear of, right? But, but then there are other people who are doing baptisms mentioned there who aren't necessarily, um, but they are still prominent male figures if they're not, if they're not uh, considered elders. Um, I don't know that that would even be surprising in the culture, but you just can't read that off the text of Scripture is what I'm saying, yeah. Okay, so we do need to make a distinction just to be very clear between like what I'm saying is wrong to do. Like if we did this, we needed to repent because we did our process error in something that is just how we should normally be about doing things. Okay, how we should normally be about uh, doing things. Okay, any other questions about that? If you have questions about that, come ask me later. So what is the difference between members and non-members, even if they are well-known? Okay. Looking around, our non-members who have been here for years are not here, which is great for this particular point. No, maybe it's not. I'm not sure. But let me just say, uh, because uh, you, you have to answer this question. Who cares? I can just be around. I can show up to community groups. Take the Lord's Supper, sing the songs, listen to the sermon, have people over for the birthday party, and and have friends and all of it without being a member. And so what's the real difference? Right here. I'm going to give you the real difference. Here's the real difference. Six real differences. Six real differences. And I would say at least in in the first two, starting with the most important, going down to the practical. Okay? First... Non-members do not exercise the keys. Boom. They don't. You do not get our under, the people's understanding of the gospel, why they believe they are a Christian, uh, 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 when they came to faith in Christ. That is not sent to you if you are not a member. You, are not, you, do not, you do not control. You have no authoritative responsibility to evaluate the teaching of the church for gospel faithfulness. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not evaluating it for your own life or maybe the faithfulness. Is this faithful? Is this a good choice for my own family or something? That's fine. But you don't have an authoritative responsibility like the Galatian churches to guard the purity of the gospel for the church. You have no authoritative responsibility to protect the holiness of the church. You say, well, uh, if, if I saw someone plunging headlong into sin, I might say something to them. That's great. I hope you would. But you don't have the authoritative responsibility to. You don't have the authoritative responsibility to as far as the holiness of the church goes, regardless of what you think about your individual obligation to another individual Christian, Okay, which you probably do have a responsibility to say something. But you don't have authority or responsibility to protect the corporate holiness of the church. That's what I'm saying. You have no role in regulating membership, no role in installing elders and deacons outside of potentially being someone who gives a good report as an outsider, as part of the qualifications, and no role in contributing a vote in church discipline. Non-members, doesn't matter how well they're known, doesn't matter how long they've been around, it doesn't matter how much everyone loves them, uh, do not wield the keys. They don't exercise the keys um, and so that's a pretty, it seems to me that that's a fairly 
that's a fairly, fairly significant difference. And I've articulated the ways in which the key wielding activity plays itself out in our church there. Second, non-members aren't, is this, that's uh, not uh, italicized. Non-members aren't actually accountable to the church body. They could leave at any time with no consequences. They aren't eligible for church discipline. Now, someone might say, right? Someone might say, oh, I'm in submission to the elders. Appreciate that. But I don't have any objective authority over people who just randomly want to put themselves under mine. Anyway? Uh, uh, you, but because the, the, if someone is not a member of our church, let's say they have a sharp disagreement or maybe I come point out something in their life or you go point out something in their life and they just head out. That's the end of it. They're not a member. There's no, there's no, there's nothing we can do about that. There's no corporate accountability. Right? They can just leave. And we can say, shame on you or whatever. Which I hope, which is not what we would do. But I mean, we don't have anything. We don't have anything to do. We can plead with that person, but at that point, it's just it's just like pleading with an individual Christian in your neighborhood to not sin. There's no real, actual corporate accountability for non-members, no matter how long they've been around, or no, long, no matter how much people like them. Number three, non-members have not had their profession of faith and their life publicly validated by our key wielding congregation. They are citizens of a far country, but with no passport. Or an expired one. An expired one. I used to be a member at another church. My faith and my life was validated. Now I'm switching over to churches. Okay, so you might. But, but that's the, the idea here is that um, when I I've, uh, used to train in, 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 uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and I met, I met a guy who was teaching jiu-jitsu. And, um, and I was like, oh, man, he was a black belt. Was, oh, man, this guy's going to wear me out. And he, he did. He did. It was awesome. Um, but then, like, we trained for a couple months, and he was like, uh, uh, I, all right, I've taught you everything. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, that's basically it. It's like, it takes like 10 years to get like a, a, a black belt in submission wrestling, jujitsu, the stuff you see in like UFC fighting. And I, and we found out later, I found out a couple of years ago that this guy, the way he got a black belt was he went and bought one and just tied it around his waist. Okay. That's not how it works. All right? That's not how it works. But here's the thing. That's not you. So, so even if you were a black belt, and, and here's another example. There was a guy who was a, was a all-American wrestler, and he came in and prayed with these jujitsu guys. He just rolled through all of them because he was an all-American wrestler. National champion in, a, in a, the NAIA it was amazing. He probably was at that, at least in the by the standards of competition in that sport, he was at that level. But for both of them, regardless, it would still be appropriate, inappropriate for either one to go just get a black belt and go, call me sensei. Or you know what I mean? That's not how it works. So as a Christian, you can be a Christian, but you don't you are not authorized to declare by your this is the embassy model here. You are not authorized to declare your citizenship to the nations just by yourself. That's not how it works, okay? Who has validated your profession of faith? Who has validated your life? Where Do you have a passport? It's not saying that you can't proclaim yourself to be a Christian. You should. You should proclaim yourself to be a Christian. But there is a validation that comes with the, with the corporate body with having church membership, and that's actually what I'm going to get to next. But non-members 
simply do not have that particular element. They are Christians. They are all uh, hopefully Christians. The one we're considering in this moment are Christians, but they are not Christians that in the in the practice of our the way it gets fleshed out in our church, who have had their particular understanding of the gospel and their particular understanding of why. Uh, they believe they are Christian, and when they came to faith, circulated around, had people under read those things, engage them with questions if necessary, sit with the elders for an interview. That's how we try to do this step. Um, and non-members simply have not had that, or at least not in the same way. Okay. Four, practically, in terms of pastoral care, when time and resources are mutually exclusive, just to be very clear, members will be preferred over non-members. That's not supposed to hurt anyone's feelings. That just makes sense, right? I mean, if I've got limited, let's just say that I have limited time, right? And limited, yeah, limited capacity, limited time. And I've got a lot of people who need to have a Zoom call or a back and forth or a meeting or a lunch or whatever the case may be. Members are going to be prioritized over non-members. I hope that's not controversial. That's just how it works. Uh, fifth. Practically, non-members are unable to serve in roles that require membership. The music ministry, teach in a men's, women's ministry, work in nursery or children's Sunday school. And one of the reasons for that is you have to be child safety qualified. Um, but we, we wouldn't have non-members teaching those classes uh, anyways. Okay? And so, yeah, if you are in that... And by the way, when I, say you're, when I say someone is unable, I don't mean that they're not gifted to do it or they wouldn't be great at doing it. I'm just saying practically, if you're not a member, you're not going to be serving in those particular roles in our church, and largely that's because there is no accountability for you. How could you put a non-member in a nursery class and then tell them, hey, this is how we do things. They say no. There, there's just there's no accountability if you're not, no corporate accountability. Finally, practically, our church's benevolence policy is significantly more limited towards non-members. Okay, so we have a very, the deacons do a great job of this, great job of this. But um, there is certainly more going to be more uh, financial benevolence towards people who are who have who are in and who are members of our church than, than just people who have who have come along and who are kind of more or less dating the church even if it's a really long like dating kind of thing going on still still remains the case so that's what I would suggest that is six reasons six things that theologically and practically are true differences between members and non-members, all right? So someone asked, so any questions about that? Did any of those hit you the wrong way? Do I need to clarify anything? Talk to me before I move on. Oh, wait, I can't, you can't talk to me because I'm past time. I'm so sorry. All right, so next time what we'll do is we will, uh, I will uh, come ask me your questions about that. Um, and I, next time I'm going to make a biblical case for church membership, that it's not just a practical thing. It's not just a, well, this is, logistically easier, but no, there's a biblical case to be made for membership. I'm going to try to make it for you next week. Let's pray. God, thank you for being with us as we consider these things, some of them more challenging than others. Again, we're astonished that you would give us the keys of the kingdom to wield. We pray that that would help us take our memberships just more seriously, that we are governing officers, that we are declaring what's and who's of the kingdom of God, and that we do when we gather together and speak on these things, that we represent um, heaven on earth. Lord, help us love the church, be enamored with your bride, even as we participate in it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Sorry for going a couple minutes over. Lost, lost track of time.